got me choked up there. If only we can believe that message. Don't fear. Be of good courage and work. Well, I hate to begin with an apology today, but I feel that I should. Uh, not just for being me, but I mean... <laughs> I, I really felt I did you an injustice and did God's word an injustice yesterday by trying to plow on through Nehemiah that quickly. I realize in retrospect that I, I had, uh, or I have, a lot of things that I would like to cover during this feast, and I wanted to try to get through that in one sermon, but it was impossible to do. There was just too much there, and then I tried to hurry it and uh, miss some things that I later on thought about, and I sort of went back through it last night and realized that uh, I had missed a lot, so... I am sorry that I took God's Word, in a sense, that lightly and took you that lightly rather than going ahead and cutting it off at that time and, and doing justice to it. So I, I will apologize for that. On the other hand, the Word of God is so deep and there is so much there that I can read Nehemiah again how many more times and I'll always find something new there, things that I missed before. So, if nothing else, I, I hope that I can encourage you to get your heads in the book. That's where our heads need to be. And there is so much in here. Uh, I've concentrated, and I wasn't a, a student of prophecy in that sense much at all. Uh, through the most of the ministry, I was in church, I mean, worldwide, uh, I was one more to speak on Christian living than anything else over the years from 66 on. But it was only in Church of the Great God because of beginning to see some of the things that I've been talking about in the last four and a half years that I began to really concentrate on the prophetic side of it. So it was kind of new to me in that sense, and uh, it became very exciting, and that has been more of the focus the last few years, trying to understand what God was doing and why and what we needed to do in response is, is where I'm coming from in terms of these prophecies. But um, there is so much there that all I feel I can do is scratch the surface, and maybe it will encourage you then to get your head in there, number one, to check out what I'm saying, and number two, to broaden and deepen your understanding of the same things once you get an idea of where it's coming from and what the focus is and, and what the angle is. Uh, so you might go back through Nehemiah at some point and find some things there that I obviously skimmed over or missed and uh, didn't get to. Uh, there were some things there that uh, I felt were, imp were important uh, and I, th I think I'll go back there just for a moment, however long a moment turns out to be, um, to chapter 3 and verse 20. <clears throat> it 
here we didn't cover this at all, and I really didn't intend to, because it just names the various gates, the various sections of the wall, the various people were working on. Uh, verse 12 first, I, I think this one was interesting. Here's Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. He and his daughters, mentioned specifically the daughters worked on it. So girls, uh, maybe you need to get your hands dirty in this project as well. Uh, interesting that he put that in there uh, as a specific, because he didn't do that with others. But specifically, he wanted to give recognition to the daughters who were working. Uh, another one is verse 20. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, earnestly repaired the other piece. So here was a man, apparently, who stood out above the other workers who was really putting out the elbow grease. And Ezra felt that it was important to mention that there was someone who was really, really zealous in what they were doing. But it inspired some thoughts in my mind about vision. I remember pulling grass burrs in the lawn at our home in West Texas. It seemed like they outnumbered the Bermuda grass considerably. And as a little kid, my dad would have me out there with a bucket picking those burrs out of the lawn. And it seemed never-ending. There were more of those than I possibly could ever pull and they grew overnight in places that I had just plucked the day before and were almost mature, it seemed, overnight. And I did not work really hard at it, to probably my dad's consternation and frustration. I would sit out there with a the bucket, and I would pick here, and I would pick there, and I figured it was an overwhelming task that couldn't be done anyway, so what was the hurry? You know, sort of like a union job. <laughs> union workers do not really have a vision of a car that they want built, nor do they have a vision of it working perfectly when it comes out of that factory. Those of you who have bought cars understand. Callbacks are considerable. But these people had a vision of a wall that had to be built. Now, one thing about a finite goal is you know how much you have to do. That wall had to be a certain height, it had to be a certain thickness, and their particular section of it had to be a certain width. And when we have a finite goal, it's easier to capture the vision of what it's going to take to get that accomplished and then pitch in with elbows and hands and knees and get the job done. Now, we are called to build a spiritual temple, and it is not as finite. It is much more difficult to define. We are to become like God, to think like God, to be like God. Now, get a vision of that. <laughs> Can you? It's overwhelming. It's a job we have to do. It's something we understand in many respects very little about, this book is full of knowledge about God and how we ought to be, but it's a big book. And it is here, in the, here a little, there a little, layer upon layer, and is very deep, purified seven times, Psalm 12, 6. And it's very hard to grasp God, but that's what we're here to be. 
So we have to read this book a great deal to get a stronger, better vision of what God is and what our goal is. And it does not come easy. It comes through hard work. But the very fact that we know that we are to become God should give us vision and impetus for the job at hand, to come to have that kind of character. But when you have a vision of something, you work harder at it, don't you? And I think that's the job of the speakers here at the feast, is to help give us a vision of both the world tomorrow in terms of the millennium. It is to give us a vision of the kingdom of God as well. A clearer understanding. Becoming like God and acting like God is almost overwhelming in the sense that for each and every one of us, it's pretty much virgin territory. You follow me? No one's done it but Christ. And we all start from square one with that goal in mind. Not only do we start in square one, I think we could take it back and say we start in square minus 15 or something. Because having come out of this world and the wrong teaching, we have to come up to a point that we begin to learn at age 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60 that there's a different way than all of this that is minus, that is below, and start building from zero up, getting rid of the bad knowledge that was there. But we have to capture the vision, because without vision, the people perish. Without a clear view of where we're going, we can't accomplish something. Now, when I wanted to build a house for me, I knew about how I wanted it to look. I had an idea of how big I wanted it to be. I had an idea of what it would take in terms of money uh, and plan to accomplish it. And I had a, di a totally different view of a house for me and my family than I did for picking burrs out of my father's lawn. And I worked very hard, worked late, worked nights, worked any time I could find to build me a house. I had a vision. I had something I wanted to do. And we have a spiritual temple to build because our bodies are that temple. And yet the church, in a sense, is an even greater temple. So it's, it's layer upon layer. We are the temple of God, but then so is the congregation as a whole, the temple of God. But these people had caught a vision, and in 52 days, they accomplished that finite task. Ours is a little more abstract, quite a, little, quite a lot more abstract, in fact. But here is where we will find it. So if I can inspire you in any way to get your head more and more into this book, uh, this is where you will capture the vision. So there is a huge spiritual lesson in the book of Nehemiah that you could give a whole sermon on. Uh, but I wanted to mention that. And even with that vision, though, notice verse 10. And Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burden is decayed. I don't know what the New King James says in there. It's probably phrased better. But we're tired, uh, to paraphrase. Our strength is diminished or gone. We can't go on. We've had too much. This is too hard. And there is much rubbish so that we're not able to build a wall. And I think that's characteristic of looking at the overall church today. There's just, just an awful lot of rubbish in the way. Rubbish in terms of thoughts, 
rubbish in terms of ideology, rubbish in times in terms of um, uh, scabs and sores from misuse and abuse uh, of the church on us and, and us on each other and so on and so forth. And it becomes wearisome. But he whose, he whose end endures shall be saved. Or something like that. He who endures to the end shall be saved. So, as you see, there's a lot more in there than I got to. So, uh, we, we'll leave it at that on that particular thing. Now, I'm not going to try to accomplish this next subject in one sermon. We'll just see how far we get, and if we don't finish it, we'll go on. And I don't think we will finish it. But today I'm going to speak on the most unpopular subject in the church. Might as well just tackle it. Some of you have already begun to figure out what the subject is. Well, we're here at the Feast of Tabernacles to picture the time when Christ will be ruling on the earth and all those people out there who survive the Holocaust at the end of the age will be under the rule of Jesus Christ and everything will be peaceful and righteous and wonderful and the lambs and the lions will lay down together and uh, the snakes will not bite, um, cattle will eat grass, I'm quoting Isaiah 11, and Edenic conditions will return. As somebody put it this morning, God will reverse the situation. Instead of briars and thorns and Johnson grass and crab grass and dandelions in your lawn, uh, corn will grow naturally. Various things that can be eat will grow naturally as they did in the Garden of Eden. And then it will be a matter of tending and keeping as opposed to trying to get rid of weeds and trying to find something that will grow and produce food. So everything will be abundant. Now, we passed Feast of Trumpets a few days ago, which was our day. The day of the resurrection of the first fruits. Had to do with our generation. Had to do with all those who've been called to the first fruits from Abraham. Uh, through the ages, through the New Testament church, and so on, including those of us who are qualified and included and sealed here at the end. Then we entered atonement, which is partly for us, uh, us becoming one with God, and at the first resurrection, suddenly becoming fully God. But it also has to do with the binding of Satan, but that doesn't have anything to do with us, because we will have been made spirit, feast of trumpets, and... Satan would have no more influence over us. So that part of atonement really is for those people who will live on into the millennium and, and the great white throne judgment to follow. Satan being bound so that he can no longer influence anyone anymore. And then they will have an opportunity to begin to become at one with God, with Christ ruling here on the earth. Now that sidetracks around what I was headed to, but I wanted to give it you time to cogitate and, and write down the topic of today's sermon in your notes uh, without me having to tell you what it is. 
dare I say it? Government. I don't know of any word that creates more consternation in the church today than that one word. But if we're to rule with Jesus Christ in the world tomorrow, and we're to rule a world righteously and properly, we need to understand the fundamentals of how God rules and how he expects us to be ruled and to rule and how he expects government to be uh, accomplished and administered in the church today. Most people say, I don't know, that's, that's wrong, excuse me. Some people say today there should be no hierarchy, no place where one man has precedent over others in terms of administration or government. Uh, one of the main proponents of that that I happen to think of at the moment basically is a hierarchy. He preaches against hierarchy, but he is a hierarchy because he decides what will be spoken. He decides where the people will meet. He decides virtually everything about it. So it's a hierarchy. It's just one level is all. And instead of being a multi-level hierarchy, it's just uh, I'm the boss, you the peasant. <laughs> type of a thing, but that's still a hierarchy, isn't it? I did a series of articles, I think two or three articles in the Forerunner three or four years ago, entitled, I Love Government. It, it uh, shook a few trees. <laughs> Just the title shook some trees. But I think the title caused people to, I've got to read this. Uh, do we have that available? I think that would be good to put on the CD. Uh, because I used a very simple analogy to start with, as I recall, and that was my body. My body is hierarchical. My head is here to tell my hands and my feet what to do. Now, if my feet and my hands rebel, I get bruises on my body. Christ even told us not to let our eyes tell our mind what to do, not to let our hand tell us what to do, otherwise pluck it out or cut it off. Get that from you which tries to rule over you, in other words. Not literally, but he was using the metaphor. Some people let their groin tell them what to do. There are many different parts of the body that will cry out to tell you what to do. But God gave you a mind, and his, his Holy Spirit is centered in the brain. It's not centered in the hand or the foot or the eye. So you see, the body is a hierarchy. It's, it's very simple. This part's supposed to rule over the other parts, but sometimes we don't get it right, and this part rules over this part, and then we find ourselves in trouble. I used an example in there about me in the morning. I was, at the time, I was living in outside Charlotte and commuting to the office. And if I get up in the morning and I make myself a cup of coffee, that's partly to get the brain going because otherwise I'm in, I can get in trouble real easily. If, if I'm not coordinated enough, my mind is not yet enough in control and my body's fumbling around in the morning. Have you ever done that? stumble, drop things. There was one morning I remember, and that's the reason I use the example, 
was I was going to make some coffee or heat up some coffee that was already made, and I was still half asleep, and I put the empty cup in the microwave. You see, that the hierarchy had not kicked in yet. <laughs> I won't finish the story. You know it. But I'm glad that I basically had the mind back in control before I started my morning commute. Otherwise, this would have developed into an even bigger problem involving a lot of people. You know, stoplights are there for a reason. So my human body is a hierarchy. The body of Christ is a hierarchy. There is the Father and there is the Son. And the Son always looks to the Father. And that's very clear in there. Christ said it over and over again. Now, hierarchy has its limits, and we have to be careful. Because one-third of the angels rebelled and followed their leader in the hierarchy. So we have to be careful that we always look to the head, the Father and the Son, and not to a lesser luminary such as Satan the devil became and a third of the angels followed it. So the head has to stay in control, you see. Uh, I Maybe those angels had been under him for who knows how long. And they understood that government comes from the top down. But they did not grasp fully and understand that if there is a glitch in there somewhere, you have to take different action. They stuck too closely to it. Well, it was the first time in the history of the universe, as far as we know, that anyone had ever rebelled. So it was a new situation to them, and they reacted wrongly. Why did Paul say, follow me as I follow Christ? implying follow me only as I follow Christ. Now, we got caught up in the thing where Herbert Armstrong was the apostle as he came on the stage, and it became too much that way, and we created an idol of the man. It wasn't necessarily all his fault, but when I build or create an idol... That idol has to be destroyed. Therefore, Herbert Armstrong had to be taken away from us, no matter whether he was righteous or not, because the idol had that we had created had to be removed from before our eyes. Now, in many respects, we only moved over an organization or two, went back to sleep and did the same thing with other leaders where they instead became the icon in front of our eyes. That, too, is dangerous. Have we learned the lesson? I hope by now, you've, some of you have been through three, four, five, six different organizations. I hope we've learned that lesson. Don't you dare make one out of me. I can't see how you could anyhow, but... Uh, I don't want that responsibility, and you certainly don't want it for you. All I want you to do is read this book, and I want you to check out carefully what I say. 
if I'm wrong, I want you to come say, you know, I'm not sure I understand that. What what did you mean? Or did you mean this? Or or am I wrong? Or are you wrong? Or what's wrong here? Let's let's talk. If we do that according to the way the sermonette was laid out by Mike, we won't have any problems. I'm amazed at how some of you non-evangelists can come up with truth, you know, and give good sermonettes. I, it's beyond me. I jest. You're people with minds, and you have eyes to read. And you read your book, and you come up with some of these things that are astonishing that I never saw in here before. But they're there. So you have minds, and I expect you to use them, and God expects you to use them. And not just to repeat what any minister says anywhere without checking it out in the Bible and knowing for sure. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what I think of government right off the top. That there is a limit to government. I don't know another sense of looking at it, there's no limit to government. We'll explore those. Now we're told in Haggai that when the latter temple is being built, that the leaders work together with the people. I think we need to internalize that, to understand that, and understand how that is to operate. Because I, for one, want to be a part of that latter temple, and I want you to be there as well. Uh, I have been able, I think, at least in my own mind, to prove conclusively that that is to occur. Just how and when and where and, and what and all of those questions remain there to some degree or another. But we should be working toward that goal and preparing ourselves for it, as I said yesterday. There is a project in front of God's people, and nine-tenths of them are going to ignore it, and only a remnant or about one-tenth of them are going to accept it and understand it and do something about it. And I hope that we're part of that 10%. It's not just what's here. It's a lot bigger than that because the church was a lot bigger than that, and the remnant will accordingly be much bigger as well. I don't know how many. don't even care to speculate, but more and more people are going to get the idea from the scriptures that that is what needs to be done. And I'm a slow learner, so maybe God gave me a little bit of a, a jump start on it uh, so that I could have enough time to get there, being part of the weak and base as opposed to part of the mighty and noble and smart and, and brainy. Maybe you're in the same category. I don't know. Maybe there are a few mighty and noble here, but so far they haven't really stuck out uh, so that uh, we would recognize just exactly who they are. Now, I know you may be disguised, but... Uh, We'll see through you sooner or later, and we'll, we'll recognize those brains, and we'll, maybe you've got your medals hid inside somewhere. No, I think we're all in about the same boat. God didn't call mighty and many mighty and noble, and uh, he called mostly us. So here we are. I don't, don't mean that to put us down, because he said that they will confound the wise. God in his glory and in his power and by his spirit and his might is going to cause things to happen that will confound. You know what confound means? Wow! 
how did that happen? Sort of a reaction from those who are smart and mighty and noble. In other words, it's God's project all the way. And if he can speak through Balaam's ass, he can make us confound the wise and the mighty and the noble. And it will all be to his glory, not yours or mine, because we were so wonderful. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 3.9. I mentioned the principle there in Haggai about working together. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3. And verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. So Paul told the people at Corinth, a new church, fairly new, that had a lot of problems. And he could have said, I am an apostle, and you people are neophytes, barely baptized, full of problems. A lot of you came from a Greek culture, and uh, you've worshipped idols, and you are certainly beneath me. So listen. But he didn't, did he? He said, we are laborers together. Well, that echoes Haggai. There's a key to proper government. And it is what we are told prophetically must be accomplished in the latter temple, that it will be accomplished by whoever is involved. Now let's go back to Ezekiel 34. I've referred to it already several times, and... Uh, a lot of the members of the church have used it to refer to the ministry of Worldwide Church of God and those who have followed uh, whatever organization they might be in. I guess 30, 40 years ago, I thought this was referring to Methodists and Baptists and Catholics. And in some respects, it is, because all of these things are written first to the church, secondly to the nation. And Christ will take on the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics at some point. That is, once he returns. But for right now, the fulfillment is in the church. And this is talking to us. Now, maybe we couldn't have seen it 20 or 30 years ago, but now that things have come apart, it has become very obvious that it's talking about me, us, the ministry that came from Worldwide Church of God. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. Somehow, there was a diversion. Somehow, the flocks came and provided wool and meat and milk to the Levites or the ministry. And what was God's purpose? God's purpose for giving a Levitical ministry, and then he changed ministry to the present-day ministry in the book of Hebrews, was to produce a people prepared for God. Now what happened was the bunnies came in from God's people, and the ministers got it, and lo and behold, they started building big houses, and they started having new cars, 
and they started having this and that and built huge buildings and didn't prepare a people with that money. Stop short of having a people prepared for God. This angered God. And you're reading about it right here in Ezekiel 34. You can read about it in Jeremiah 23 and Malachi 1 and a lot of other places. Those funds got short-circuited by men who decided to feed themselves instead of the flock. God was never interested in the tithes. He was interested in a people. And when the ministry did not produce a people prepared for him, he became very angry. And he began jerking that income and those sheep away from those shepherds. And it wound up with a mess we have today. Because they didn't do their job. I say they, I didn't do my job. Repentance starts at home, not by pointing the finger at others. You eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. See, the flock was being ignored. Got other things to do. Got a ball game to watch. Whatever. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. He had to take Herbert Armstrong out of the way, because he was the shepherd, but he was not able to control the situation. And he himself made mistakes. And he himself got off the track. Do you think that he only recognized that we were off the track because he recognized that you and I were off the track? At some point he recognized he was off the track. Most things you hear from the preacher, I shouldn't say this, most of the things you hear from a preacher are things that the preacher needs. <laughs> Otherwise, he wouldn't think of it. <laughs> I think I better quit now. <laughs> but Herbert Armstrong was not an exception to that. He recognized that he was off the track. I last talked to him personally in 1983, and before we went into his office to sit down and talk, I got in trouble some. Um, they even made a few rules for me at the college that had not been there before. Uh, Garner Ted and David John Hill were responsible for most of the rules they had, but there were a couple areas that I, uh, well, we, we don't need to talk about that either. That, that, that's all right. It, it's all in the past. But he himself made mistakes. It says there in Isaiah somewhere, I forget exactly where, 34? Somewhere. That uh, our shepherd, or our father, our first father had sinned, and his pastors have transgressed. 
I don't know why it is that we can be neither... I mean, we can't be in the middle of the road about Herbert Armstrong. It seems people are in this ditch that he was the apostle and anything he said has to be. And in this ditch, he was an apostate. You take your pick, apostle or apostate. Why can't we realize he was a man that God used, who had his weaknesses and his foibles and his lacks of understanding and made some bad decisions and sinned? And God used him in spite of himself, and there's hope for you and me there that God can use us in spite of ourselves, if we will but yield. I was going to tell you about the meeting in 83, before we went into the office. He said, excuse me for a minute, I have to go take my heart pills. I know I shouldn't be taking these. I just don't have the faith. I just think if I die, the church is going to fall apart. He had a guilty conscience for taking those heart pills. Now that tells me what the man felt or knew that he and we should be doing. And that is trusting more in God and less and less on man. He didn't need to tell me that. <laughs> Who was I? But it bothered his conscience that he was going in and taking those heart pills. And he let me know it. Now, if it defiled his conscience, it was sin, wasn't it? So that man did sin. For those of you who say apostle and only apostle and everything he said was God breathed. On the other hand, for those who might say he was apostate and a false Christ, I could recount you many, many stories of that man giving me the truth and you the truth on a lot of things. How many people are there outside the greater church of God today who understand the reason man is even on the earth? Who understand the purpose of man? They think we came from monkeys or something and that we're going to hang in trees eventually if we don't make the next step, I guess. But we understand we're to become God. That's blasphemy to any other religion. That's blasphemy to the world. But we understand that. Where did it come from? God used that man to tell us what our purpose on earth is, and we'd have never figured it out on our own. I'll guarantee you that. So there was a man who was a man. Why should that blow people away? I guess I'm not going to get to the subject at all today. But why should that blow people away? We can read the accounts of Abraham who lied. We can read the accounts of David who did worse. We can read the accounts of any of the men of God who had problems and made mistakes. And we don't hold them to that thing where they either had to be, everything they said was God-breathed, or simply because they did make some mistakes, they were worth nothing. Why can't we humans find the middle of the road? And that was something Herbert Armstrong constantly told us about. We were going off the track this way or off the track that way. Why couldn't we stay on the track? Well, he didn't always know where the track was. <laughs> he really didn't. And his life was a struggle, just like yours and mine, to stay on the track. So 
let's understand and understand him in the light of the rest of the men of God. Boy, there's some people listed in Hebrews 11 who are some pretty powerful people and showed an awful lot of faith, but I can go digging back here in the Old Testament and find that some of those people mentioned there made some pretty heinous errors, committed some pretty terrible sins. And they're going to be in the kingdom of God. I believe Herbert Armstrong will be in the kingdom of God. I certainly don't believe the man was perfect. And I believe that we still have the Bible here, and this is a book that he in a lifetime could not get all figured out. And I am not going to in my lifetime, by any means. I'm glad I had a jump start and a boost from a man whom God revealed a lot of things through so that I could at least get a good start on it. Because on my own, without having had Herbert Armstrong in the Church of God as a background, would still not know a blooming thing about God or the Bible. I would have probably grown up to be anything but religious had it not been God sending that man and that voice and that message to get me the truth as a youth in life. But that doesn't mean there weren't serious problems, and Ezekiel 34 tells us about those problems. They were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. The minister really didn't care, except for the tithes and the offerings. That's all that really mattered. But the people themselves really didn't count for much. So when they were scattered and the tithes stopped, eh, why worry about that one? Don't even visit them. Don't take, don't try. Into verse 8, the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Into verse 10, I will deliver my flock from their mouth. But it turns better here. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they've been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. We've had a cloudy and dark day in the church as a forerunner of the cloudy and dark day in this world. And the same sheep that were scattered are the same sheep that are going to be gathered. In a great, much greater way, the sheep that are scattered in the day of the Lord to all nations and become slaves will be gathered in the millennium. But the sheep of God, he is going to deliver and gather. And that's you and me if we respond to him. He said he will stir them up in Haggai and bring them, and that they will work under the two witnesses, whoever they are, to build the latter temple. That, to me, is not speculation whatsoever. I think it can be proved in black and white right in the Bible. And I think we've done that. I won't go back and try to redo it now. Verse 23, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. He's not going to resurrect David in this life. Uh, obviously, this has a latter fulfillment when David himself will come up in the great white, or in, in the first resurrection and uh, rule over physical Israel, which will then 
become a part of spiritual Israel as they are converted. But he is going to get, send us that kind of leadership for us as well at the end. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace. That's what it says in Haggai. In this place will I bring peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in a season. There shall be showers of blessings. And they'll no longer, in verse 28, be a prey to the heathen. Nor shall the beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. Talking about the place of safety with us, and later on, physical Israel in the millennium, when they are given safe pasture as well. But it has to come to us first. We have to understand proper government. We have to understand proper practice. We have to have lived it in order to be able to teach those people how to live in peace and safety. Because this world does not know how to find peace. They don't know the methods to produce peace. All they know to do is go to Oslo or somewhere and sign a bunch of papers and say, we'll be good. And then go out and be bad. <laughs> That's all they know how to do. But they don't know how to make Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Christ said. Peace does not come naturally, if you, if you hadn't noticed. It has to be produced, and there is a way to produce it. Your children don't normally make peace with each other, do they? You have to be the peacemaker with your children. Now, what is the basic essence of the New Testament? What does the New Testament talk about? The whole subject of the New Testament is the G word. It's government. Now what kind of government? What does it talk about? Self-control. Controlling one's mind bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ, making sure you think like him, act like him, walk like him, to even walk as he walked. Government, in its basic element, is self-control. Self-government, in other words. The Father in heaven is self-governed. He needs no one over him because he is in total control of his mind, his thoughts, his actions. Everything that he does and thinks is under his control. And Jesus Christ, his son, is totally under the Father's control. Why? Because he himself has perfect self-government, self-control. That is the one basic overriding factor of government. That's what it's all about. What does Paul talk about over and over? Control your mind. Control your thoughts. Don't give in to Satan. What did Christ tell us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples? 
told them to love each other, told them to be peacemakers, told them to control their anger, told them to control their eyes and their hands, told them to control every part of their body, to govern themselves according to what God is. If we had perfect self-government, we would need no other form of government because we would automatically humbly submit one to another, esteem others better than ourselves, and esteem the Father and the Son far above any other being, and we would please them and do everything according to their will and purpose and mind and desire. Now, I'm painting a rosy-colored world here, but it's a world you and I are candidates to become a part of. This isn't pie in the sky. This is a very finite goal in that sense. In many respects, it is abstract to us, but it is finite to control every thought, not just some of them some of the time, as we tend to do, but to control all our thoughts, not to let any of them slip into wrong areas and wrong ways. That is what government is all about, self-control self-government. If my mind had complete control of my hands and my feet and my eyes and all the rest of the parts of my body, I would be under control and I wouldn't have any problems. Oh, my wife still might be a problem, but you see, I can't completely control her, can I? This isn't a confession. What I'm trying to point out is she has a mind of her own. She has to control her mind. I have to control my mind. Now, what happened is somebody at some point probably came to the Feast of Tabernacles in the history of Worldwide Church of God and said, Christ will rule with a rod of iron. I think I'd better go find me a big one. I'm going to rule like Christ minister sat in that piece of tabernacle sermon, hearing that millennial sermon, and said, I'm going to go find me one, too. This is hypothetical, you understand. I didn't hear this. So all the ministers, not all of them, but most of them, it seems, found themselves a great big rod of iron. And they went back to their congregations, and they said, if you don't agree with me and do everything I say and everything the church says through me then I'm going to whack you. And they grew up in Ambassador College, as I did, about the time that GTA put out that child-rearing child rearing booklet and said every time they do something wrong, whack them. And the ministers who read that and heard GTA teach that, including me, then went out in the field and started having babies, and every time they murmured, they whacked them. And they looked at their congregations, and every time the congregation seemed to get out of control like their two-year-old, they whacked them. And this became a pretty wacky organization. <laughs> and it turned into terrible misuse and abuse. Now, don't get me wrong. I am for corporal punishment or sergeant or whoever. Because the Bible says, if you don't 
found his behind, you don't love him. And I can show you quite a few different scriptures in the Proverbs that some people have simply clipped out of their Bible because they saw the abuse of child-rearing and they saw too much spanking and too much harshness, and therefore they said, that whole system's wrong. Where's the balance? Ditch to ditch. We have trouble finding it. But those people today have... Maybe they haven't gotten scissors or a knife and clipped those scriptures out, but they absolutely ignore them, and now their kids are just the opposite. They're in the other ditch. Don't ever lay a hand on him reason with that little uh, rascal. Have to be careful some of the things that I might say. Some of the words God uses in the Bible I don't dare use because it will offend some former Methodist. That's a fact. But then we shouldn't offend the little one. They'll get over Methodism someday, sometime, I suppose. If Paul wouldn't eat meat for the rest of his life if it offended the little one, then we better be careful what we say. But things did get out of hand. And... The word government became a very, very bad word in the church because of the abuse that we all suffered. And, and, you know, if you want to, we can come up and start telling war stories and we'll keep the beast yet another eight days. But, you know, at some point we... And I don't mind listening to some war stories and swapping stories about the way some things were. But it's not in order to gossip or to malign... It's simply that we need to avoid repeating those mistakes. But at some point, we need to sort of get that out of our system and forget it, unhitch the trailer, you know, and and let it go on behind and move on forward away from it. Because we have much better things to do than to reminisce over past wrongs. Yes, there's a period of time that it needs to be healed, and there's sometimes we need to open up our heart and let some of that venom pour out to whatever soul is willing to listen to it, uh, but then it needs to heal. And let's do things right from now on, just being careful not to ever do the wrong again. So having gone off the track, God is going to put it back, and he's going to give us at some point leadership, an overall leadership, that is going to be correct. You can find throughout the different organizations ministers who are basically keeping government under control and in the being used in the right way but overall it did get to be abused there's no doubt about that and god prophesied it here and now we can see it clearly that that has happened so the reason i would stand here and say i'm going to preach about the most unpopular topic that is in the church today and some of you figured out what it was before we finally did get into it is an attestation to the fact that there was a great deal of abuse, and it did become a bad word. But I don't think any of us would argue with the fact that government is necessary. What if I didn't govern my mind at all, or my mind didn't govern the rest of my body at all? I I would be in serious trouble. And we all would. So, on the basis level, we understand that government is necessary. But on a, an emotional level, having suffered 
the wrong kind, it's a touchy subject. See, we don't want to be proud or vain or egotistical and create control over others and become swell-headed in our own minds because we're so wonderful, like that being did, who fell, full of pride. And there's another ditch with ourselves. We don't want our brain to feed that we are no good. Because that's a wrong form of government, too. We can beat ourselves down and beat ourselves down, but there's a balance between the overweening pride on one side and I ain't no good for nothing on the other side. Neither is a proper use of our mind and our emotions. God is not proud. But then on the other hand, God doesn't say I'm not any good because he knows he's good. And the Son came down here and told us the Father was good. So we have to recognize we have human nature, but we have to find the right balance from the words here and how we are to think of ourselves and to think of each other. In its simplest form, that is what government is. Now, you might call this, as a title, the ebb and flow of government. Because what I did in preparing this sermon, or excuse me, this series of sermons, time is it we have to quit at four don't we okay was I simply thumbed through the New Testament and I found examples of government all kinds of examples of government and I did not go in and organize this from the standpoint of uh, I'll use all these examples in this category and all these examples in this category and try to make an organized thing all I did was go through here and find examples because I, I couldn't have prepared this sermon with a concordance. I mean, if I'd gone in there and said, all right, let's uh, look up the word government, and there are how many places is government mentioned in the Bible? Not very many in the New Testament, at least. Governments is mentioned a few times. But I might have come up with a little column this long in the concordance about government. <laughs> and that would have been the ex excuse me. Please. That would have been the extent of the sermon. Or I might have looked up uh, another word that had to do with it, but I couldn't have gotten them all because most of the examples of government in here are just that, examples. And they don't use the word, so a concordance wouldn't have sufficed in putting these scriptures together. So I simply paged through the whole New Testament and started picking them out, and I'm sure I mentioned I missed quite a few. Uh, the, the ones that came to mind are or that I saw, or that I had marked, I picked out. But in its simplest form, that is self-control, I missed most of it. Because that's what the whole thing is about, is controlling our mind, our emotions, our feelings, our relationships with other people, and governing our minds and thoughts accordingly. That's what the whole book is about. All right, let's go to... Matthew 18. And by doing that, I've already skipped a lot of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 about self-control, uh, but I want to hit some of these other things that have... 
a little more to do with, let's say, New Testament administration, what Christ expected those that he was putting in charge to do in terms of a, of a hierarchy, if you'll pardon the use of the word, uh, or an organization or an administration. I'd better define it than hierarchy, since that's such that's that's the H word. <laughs> um, actually, let's go back a little bit. We have time since this is a series. To uh, Matthew 16 and verse 12, speaking to the disciples, then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of doctrine, uh, leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Jews. Hmm. You know what the Jews did? They rejected almost all the Old Testament and taught their traditions of men. Now, God had given them governing principles here, but they departed from most of them and followed their own traditions and ideas. And Christ called them every name about that you could call somebody that's scurrilous in Matthew 23, and said, you, you, well, in Mark 7, 7 to 9, he said, you have rejected the commandments of God, teaching the traditions of men. So he said, you've rejected my word, the Old Testament. Then what did they do? They rejected him, whom the Father had sent to them. Then what did they do? They rejected the entire New Testament church, and the entire New Testament. Now, how much of God do the Jews have today? Almost nothing. They rejected the Old Testament, the Son of God, and the New Testament. I think the only thing they possibly have right is the calendar. That's the only thing we have ever looked to them for, isn't it? I mean, surely they have something right. It must be that. All right, I had my fun. But here Christ told his disciples, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. He's writing, he's telling Peter, just watch the size of your head here, fellow. What you know came from the Father. Okay? He's just about to install this fellow as Pope, so he deflates him just a little bit. And I say to you that you are Peter, and Mr. Armstrong got this right, pebble, little rock, little bitty thing that you can pick up with a couple of fingers, in other words. And upon this rock, Petra, himself, Christ, I will build my church, 
and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. No one can destroy it. It will not die out. It will always be here, and it will perform that which I wish it to perform. He doesn't cast his bread upon the waters in vain. Now, Mr. Armstrong explained verse 18 to us correctly, but he didn't finish 19. And this has been a source of dismay and frustration through the church for many, many years. And I did cover it sometime in a sermon in, the, in time past. You might remember it. But I thought it might be a good place to start this. And that is a mistranslation here. Verse 19, And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth had better be that which is bound in heaven. And that what you loose on earth had better be that which has been loosed in heaven. In other words, he is severely limiting Peter and the apostles. That you had better not loose or bind anything that has not been loosed or bound in heaven. That is more a correct translation, though I did somewhat of a paraphrase, but it is, I forget now what translation that, oh, the Williams Bible translates it that way, that way, and I think there was one other that did. And it makes more sense to me that way, because that way the Pope can't say, I am the offspring of Peter, and I can bind and loose anything I want to. Or the church cannot say, well, that's the apostle, and he can do anything he wants to, you see? But we didn't understand that this was not a granting of great opportunity to do that which we wish, but it was limiting them to what is bound or loosed in heaven. Otherwise, it contradicts John 10.35, which says the scripture cannot be broken. We are limited to this book. And any time anyone teaches us anything that is not in here or is in contradiction to this, they have either rebelled or they are ignorant or they have exceeded any authority they were ever given. It's that simple. If it doesn't agree with this word, it is anathema. This is the final authority for mankind on earth. This is the government. This is the Constitution. We are to live by every word of God. Every scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and one other thing. Reproof, I guess it was. This is it. This is our government. If I tell you anything that's contrary to this book, you are not bound whatsoever to do it. If I show you something that is in this book, you are bound by God to do it. If it says Panky's little behindy, then we should do it. But we should also learn wisdom and understanding of when and how much and how hard and how often and what for. You, you just cannot throw part of it out because you saw it abused in one side of the ditch or the other. There is a balance to all. 
And we have to read the entire book to get the entire balance and the entire wisdom and understanding of how God expects us to govern ourselves. That's what it's all about. So he severely limited the apostles, or those who were to become the apostles here, by letting them know they had limited authority. Yes, they were, he was being given authority, but it was a limited authority. And if we had just understood that scripture, I think we would have saved ourselves an awful lot of grief. He says the same thing uh, over in Matthew 18, which is where I was headed before I decided to go back to that. He, he talks about us becoming as little children in the beginning of Matthew 18, and that if we offend the little one, it would be better for us if a millstone were hanged around our neck. Those are fairly heavy things. You know what happens when you have a millstone tied around your neck and you get thrown in the water? You go right to the bottom, and the oxygen is very thick down there. <laughs> H2O. <laughs> and it doesn't breathe in and out too good. He's telling us we'd be better off dead than if we offended a little one. So... What carefulness, what zeal. I'll find that scripture someday, too. It should produce in us to be careful how we treat one another. But he repeats that down here in Matthew 18, where it talks about if a brother trespass against us, we're to go to him alone, and then take two, three witnesses if they won't listen to us, and then take it to the congregation if they won't listen to two or three. But he gives a warning with it. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth had better be that which is bound in heaven. We don't have a right to go to someone and put them out of our midst unless it is a, an offense which is bad enough that they should be separated from the camp or quarantined until they get well. We don't have the right to put somebody out because we don't like the color of suit they wear or the color of car they drive or because they didn't organize their cabinets the way we would have or some of the other flippant, stupid reasons people were cast out of the church maybe those are a little weak but there were some that were just about that bad we had better be very careful if we put someone away from us that it is truly an offense that God would put them away for we had better not exceed that authority because these are God's little ones each and every one of you are God's people. Specifically, he picked you out of all these people on this earth. And if you've been to around the earth or to some of the cities on this earth or the cities in this country, there's a basket full of people. There's a bunch of them around. And he specifically selected you by name and personality out of all that bunch, and said, I believe that one can govern himself according to my ways. 
Therefore, I will call him and challenge him to be like me. But in that term, it's a bit scary, isn't it? You know why it's scary? Because you know you and I know me. And we know we have the prones. If you remember that one. Mr. Armstrong used, gave the sermon about the prones years and years and years ago. About the, uh, the minister that talked about how these people had the prones. They're prone to sin! <laughs> Was the catch line. I won't tell the whole story. But we know ourselves. You know what? There was an apostle that said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And he immediately said, Jesus the Christ. Because it is only by the power of God and his spirit that this can be accomplished. And he would not have given you the calling he gave you without being willing to provide his spirit to go with it, and that if through the proper exercise of that spirit and self-control, you would come to be spiritually mature and upon your change absolutely perfect. And he is able to bring you, using the analogy of the first fruits, to that point of ripeness and sweetness and succulency and juiciness that he desires in those that he picks to use for himself. Oh, we of little faith. We have not fully bought that concept that he is capable of producing that in us because we continually to fall short of the mark, don't we? We continually go our own way or think our own thoughts and do not bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. But it is possible, and we shall achieve that, maybe not until our change come, but we had better be a, approximately there, somewhere within range, so that he will recognize us as one of those that he wants to suddenly change. And our names are written in the book of life. As those that he has brought and begotten and prepared and given the opportunity to control their own thoughts and actions. And he expects what? Fruits. He expects us to exercise our talents and produce more fruits and to become like he is. There again, we're back to the very basics of government. That's what this is all about. Now, he knew that we would continually and daily fall short. So he gave us those who could teach us, those who could guide us, those who could help us, they themselves having to wash themselves daily, because he, he rehearses in Hebrews that the high priest made of men had to be cleansed daily. They had to wash themselves, because they weren't God yet, and they shouldn't act like they were God yet, 
and they shouldn't lord it over the rest of us. Makes it very clear that they themselves are fallible, that we're brothers together and that we should work together and we should love and respect one another. I'm sorry for my peers and myself that we did not treat you right, that we let you down, that we misused and abused you. But it's time for us to repent of the misuse and abuse, and it's time for you to repent of the despite that you hold, some of you, in your hearts. It's a two-edged coin, or two-sided coin, two-edged sword. We both have work to do to get to the place that we can be workers together. And that's what we're here to do. We are here to prepare ourselves to be under control so that we can teach this world self-control in the millennium and in the world tomorrow. Someone already mentioned in a, mo- in a uh, uh, sermonette that we're not here for ourselves. And as I said earlier, Feast of Trumpets is past. We celebrated our day. Now we're here celebrating those who come through the Tribulations Day. And we are here to prepare ourselves to be the proper kind of leaders for them. So it's not just me. It's you who have to be prepared as well to be in the position of priests and kings and lords and masters and the right kind of priests and kings and lord and masters. And we've not given you as a ministry today the right balance on that. And I'm seeking and striving and working very hard to come to understand how God wants his people administered so that I can be one of those kings and priests in the world tomorrow, and I want you to understand so that you can govern yourself properly today and you can be a king and a priest in the world tomorrow. That is what we are called to be. And when a child is born in a regal family in this world. They begin training them from the time they're little children in all the ins and outs of how to be royalty. And that is what we have our hands set to do, is to become royalty. I know it's foreign to us, because that's not what we were taught as children in America and in the rest of the parts of the world. We were taught to be selfish and grubby and self-centered grasping and greedy, and me first, and whatever makes me feel good, and whatever I want, and the American dream is to be a carnal, self-centered, self-righteous, greedy, grasping fulfiller of the American dream to be more important and richer than anyone else around me and looked up to so that I can look down upon. That basically is what the American dream has devolved into. You and I don't want to be part of that. Good catch. What time is it? Well, I still got a little while here. But I haven't really gotten into my notes yet. You know, that was something else I missed there in Nehemiah. It is said they spent a quarter of the day listening to the law. Three hours. And then they had a sandbox break, 
And then they came back and heard three more hours. That's six hours out of a 12-hour day. Maybe we're just too easy on ourselves. That was a time of renewal. That was a time of coming out of the shackles of bondage and being excited again about God. And I hope that we share some of that emotion and that feeling here. That we are examining the Word of God and that we're excited about it again. And we want to wake up to what God has to say to us. And uh, those people stood, too. That's another thing. Those people stood up and listened to the Word of God. They stood up in respect. Because this hadn't been read to them for a long, long time in Babylon. And it was like, wow! <laughs> this is something we haven't heard. This is exciting. We're, we're God's chosen people. We're special to God. you believe that? We thought we were just pawns of the Babylonians. But we're special to God. They read all those scriptures about themselves. And they got all excited, all over, just like a dog shaking the water off. And they were willing to stand out there in the sun for three hours. And then take a break and come back for three more hours. Incredible, isn't it? I'm well aware that the mind can only in absorb what the another part can endure. So we're far more degenerate than those people were. <laughs> and maybe our backsides are not as good, or our feet and legs as good, and maybe our minds are of a shorter attention span because we go from commercial to commercial to commercial. Or whatever, but let's, you know... We can only take so much, and uh, there's so much here. All right, let's get into this. Let's see, uh, where do I want to go next? Uh, I've got Matthew 20 down here. There must have been a reason for it. Oh, yes. Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and that they are great they, that they are and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. Now, this has been quoted to say we should not have hierarchy. No. It doesn't say that that uh, organization is wrong, it says grinding people under your thumb is wrong, and not to mistreat people, not to misuse and abuse them, and take advantage of them like the Gentiles do, because God gave those Gentiles authority. That's what he was teaching Nebuchadnezzar when he made him go out and eat grass like a cow for seven years that he might learn that the almighty God of heaven rules among the kingdoms of men and sets the basest men over it. God establishes those governments. God put Bill Clinton in control. And God only knows why. <laughs> and I don't say that as a curse word. <laughs> I say that sincerely. Well, I, I think we know why, because God has given us a certain amount of insight 
he does put the basest of men over us. And whoever comes up next, if it isn't Bill Clinton, is going to be, if anything, worse than he is. Or if he stays in power, he's going to get worse too. Because God does put over the nations the basest of men. And that takes us to Romans 13. They say you shouldn't have hierarchy. Well, verse 13. Paul is not talking about church government here. He says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. Every office that God allows on this earth, every government is of God. It comes under the power of God. He allows it. He, al he promotes it. He even sets the particular men there, he told Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why would that be? Because Adam and Eve did not control themselves and exercise perfect government. They allowed someone in to come in, and they didn't control themselves. Therefore, God made their lives much more difficult by kicking them out and reversing the process and making briars and thorns, and they would have to earn a living by the sweat of their brow. And she would have pain in childbirth, and on and on, because they didn't control themselves. And God gave them terrible, terrible governments and empires throughout the years that we might come to understand the misuse of power and the misuse of government and the lack of control that people would have. Therefore, today we have bureaucracy, and God is sitting up there saying, I gave you bureaucracy so that you might learn that men can't control themselves, and they will control you. And there are some very deep and vital lessons there for us. So he says right here that none of these powers are there except and by the behest and direction of God. And we are to be subject to them unless and until they contradict the word of God. We must obey God rather than man, Acts 5, 29, 32. Whosoever therefore resists the power resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves what? This is pretty serious damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to you for good, but if you do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, <coughs> not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now, if I speed in the car habitually over a period of time, any time I see a bubblegum thing on the top of a car, what do I do? I may be five miles under the speed limit, but you know what I do? I hit the brake. Now, there's a guilty conscience. And that's not good. For conscience sake. For for this cause pay you tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending to their servants, attending continually upon this very thing. They're there to teach you something. And he's not talking about church government. I can prove it right here. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. What did Christ say? 
render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. I put Caesar there. I put Caesar there so you might learn some very hard lessons about how not to govern yourself and how not to govern others. We can all sit back in our sofa and watch the news on TV and throw rocks at those who are in charge in both our city, our state, and our national government, and the UN, or whatever. But do we rule our families any better than they rule the city? Maybe, maybe not. Do we rule ourselves anybody better than they rule the city? See, we're always the exception, aren't we? I can do what I want. I can do that which makes me feel good. Who cares about you? That's basically, basically the way man runs government. I'll fill my Swiss bank account. Who cares about you? Keep paying taxes. That's the way it works, and God wanted to have our noses rubbed in that. And we can sit back and criticize those people, but do we rule our own castle? Do we rule our own temple? We can learn an awful lot from watching what men do. We can learn a lot about what we are doing wrong in our own hearts and minds by watching what other men do. See, this is all of God. God allowed those governments there for that very purpose. And Paul was saying here, be subject to them and learn some lessons, folks. Don't think that you're suddenly special because you're a part of God's church or God's people and that you're above the law. Those are put there to give order in the world. Now, what kind of a world would we have if there were no stoplights and no traffic lights and no yield signs and no right of well, that is a right-of-way sign. What if we didn't have all those things and they gave us these nice, big, shiny steel machines? You want that guy to stop at the light, but you can ooze through it. You want him to stop before he makes a turn, but you can kind of California it. See? We make ourselves exceptions. Marla, would you like to give this sermon? <laughs> She's my side seat driver. And you all have one. And when she's not there, I have my conscience here, see? But I've tried to sear it as much as possible. Uh, that's why I need her. <laughs> but, but this thing all comes down to self-government. I don't think we'll go any further than this today. We'll get into some more aspects of this because we're right up to the time. But uh, if there's anything that I could get across to you, it's that self-government is the key. Controlling your own mind and emotions and feelings. If you'll do that, you'll get along with each other and me. If I'll do that, I'll get along with you because that's what it's all about is mind control but not my mind controlling you, my mind controlling me, and your mind controlling you, and we'll get along okay. That's the way God set it up. He and the, the Father and the Son get along beautifully because they both have total self-control. And that's where we're headed is total self-control. There's nothing wrong with mind power or mind control as long as it's done right, and you're doing it to you and me to, to me. 
So self-government is God's way of government. That's number one. If you, you know, big Roman numeral one when you talk about government is self-government, self-control. If we just got that under control, we wouldn't need quite so many more of these things down further down in the outline. It was the lack of self-control that caused the rest of the Bible to be written. See? It started in Eden, and it came right on down, and he just kept writing, and he kept writing, and he kept writing, because nobody would do it. But we have that opportunity, and we have the Holy Spirit of God to help us. So we may not agree on everything here. I'll guarantee you we do not. There are no two beings on the face of this earth who have ever agreed on everything. The only ones who ever have are named Jehovah and Joshua. That's all. And the rest of us have to work at it, and we have to make allowance for one another, because our perceptions will be different, our minds will be different, our way of looking at a scripture will be different, but we're all headed for the same goal and the same purpose, and I, or I don't think we would be here. And we have to make allowance for each other and give each other opportunity. And if we do disagree, as Mike was saying in the sermonette, that's fine. Just don't fight about it. See? Give each other room. Give each other space. Talk to one another. Talk. Don't argue with one another. And we will come to see what we have in common. We will come to see what we might disagree with each other on. But we will work toward agreement. That's the key and the purpose and the reason that this was written, so that we might all be part of the body, and the body all agreeing one part with another, so that it might function well together. So let's take that challenge here to control our own minds and to work and function well together with each other, and we will continue to have a wonderful feast, and it'll get even better if we govern ourselves and our attitudes and thoughts and emotions. So let's stop there.